Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. Each episode, I speak to one creative guest about memory and how their memory shapes the stories they tell others as well as the stories they tell themselves. Today, I'm excited to welcome songwriter and author Josh Ritter to the show. I'm a huge fan of Josh's music. I have been since I got pretty obsessed with his amazing song, The Temptation of Adam. We talk about that one here. I also love his most recent album, Spectra Lines. Talk about that as well. Huge thanks to Josh for being a part of this. He's got a great mind, and I love to hear what he says. Check it out here. Josh Ritter, thanks so much for joining us on That's How I Remember It. I start all these podcasts with the same question, and that question is this. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Yes, I do. I, I think I have a good memory for all the things that that that, that matter to to me. <laughs> you know, what are those things? I guess, often you know, there's 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 the the memories that are in deep in me of you know the, all the people I've known and the experiences I've had. I find that like, uh, and and of course there's the the lyrical memory and the and the memory for for melodies that has always been with me. Uh, you know, but then there's also I find I don't know about you, but like over oh, as time passes, there's a real uh, unfolding of memory as well. You know, you start you know events that that happen to you in your life pop back in in such like kind of vivid ways, and I guess that like the me- memory for me is like it's it's dependable in the retrieval situation so far, but it's also uh, really kind of amazing in its in its own kind of self-determination of what's important. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you, how, how does that all end up in your songs? I think that there's a, there's two, two things you draw on for songs. One is, I mean, maybe three, one is like the memory of uh, memories themselves. Not that they're person, not that you're like necessarily like putting them into a song, but that they supply the song with kind of a, a fuel that you need to to make your way through it in writing it or in performing it. Then there's like, you know, uh, then there's, you know, th- then there's the, the empathy portion, you know, which is, you know, being able to draw on those experiences to wonder how other people would have felt, you know, then I think that there's this other, other thing that kind of comes in, which is not memory but as a sort of a, a kind of a deep knowing that pulls those various like kind of constellations of memory together into a cohesive thing. Yeah. So first of all, I, I started this podcast. I thought everyone, all writers would say they have a good memory. And I, that hasn't been the case. I think it's been about 50-50. Or most people mm-hmm. have qualified it and said, oh, I'm good at this, but not so good at this. Yeah. A lot of musicians say they're good at like arcana, like, you know, small facts, little bits of music stuff, and then not so much about remembering people's names or whatever. So that was my thesis going in. My thesis has kind of changed or one of my theories is that, you know, that maybe the way we all put details in our songs is a way that our memories show up and kind of make things honest, even when we're writing fiction. Mm -hmm. And I I keep using the example in this podcast of, you know, I've never robbed a bank, but if I wrote a song about robbing a bank and I put the bank on a corner that I've walked by 400 times, I think I'd be able to tell that story in a way that that is emotionally more real or more honest than if it was a you know yeah th- does that track with you definitely like i you know i i think a lot about like what's like you know I- I- in relation to music and writing about what's true you know because oftentimes i feel you know and maybe why i love to write is because stuff feels more true in my little world that i'm making than it than it necessarily appears to be out here in the in the physical. Like I think, um, you know, that's it, it, and for instance, like yeah, there's something about it when you're writing a when you're writing between two characters and they're sitting at a at a little table and and for some reason one of them pulls some like you know a ziploc full of grapes from their bag, you know, yeah. it, it, it has nothing to do with anything, but it, you just know that it's like, that's what's happening. And like, there's no way around it. That's the truth of the, 
the scene. And so you try and cleave to that. And I think a little bit about that. Like, it's like when you see those, those kind of murmurations, those birds of, of those huge flocks of birds making those incredible uh, like spirals in the sky. And you think like they don't know the whole truth of what it is they're doing. Maybe none of them do, but kind of infinitesimally, they all they all approach a truth that they kind of move move within. And sometimes writing is like those kind of infinitesimal movements of words and things to form something. That's super beautiful. The one the one thing that came up on a very early version of this podcast I did with um a writer a television writer friend Edward Kitsis that he talked about the the hollow bunny what he calls it, which is like you know when you get the easter candy there's the there's the bunny that's the ch- full chocolate or there's the one that's hollow which is infinitely <laughs> less less satisfying and he said when the details aren't right it's like the hollow bunny and right, when they're yeah, right yeah. it's the full chocolate bunny and i'm like that that made a lot of sense to me. I, I think about that all the time. That reminds me of something I, I just saw recently. I pay attention to stuff going on in Ireland, and I was I was noticing that a bunch of uh, for Christmas a bunch of chocolate Santa Clauses had been being sold. Santa Clauses figures in chocolate figures in their Santa foil, uh, except when you unwrapped them, they were actually uh, chocolate St. Patrick's. And uh, <laughs> that's there's a meta is that a metaphor? There's a metaphor. There's something. There's it, it's something. bad for snakes. I know that. <laughs> um, are there so going back? Do you have a very early memory of music that moved you? Yeah, like yeah, very very early. Like I I, I mean I have a memory. Uh, my earliest memory of music was of I was on the floor in our living room and I know because it was shag carpet like kind of oatmeal colors and um and my dad was loading wood into the wood stove and uh they a record was playing uh, by this guy an auto harp player named Brian Bowers and uh and I remember that that music and it's like that sort of like it's so deep in you that you would you would recognize it in me, like a smell, like you know, like the smell of your old high school or something like that. You know that feeling, and I remember that being so well. I must have been like three, and then uh, after that, like uh, definitely, you know, we weren't a, like a family that like listened to a wide range of music as a family. But in the car on the long drives to see my grandma in Oregon, we would always listen to the Oak Ridge Boys. <laughs> we had a, a single tape, which was called Setting Fancy Free. And uh, we listened to that thing so many times. And then I remember the, the music in church, the hymns that we, we would sing, which was very, like, staid, proper, like, heavy Lutheran hymns, you know? Luther, Lutheran and, church? Yeah. You know, real solid, starchy Lutheran <laughs> you know, hymns from way back. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, all, each sort of section of life, I, I never realized it until I was like 16 or 17, had been like just fully inundated with music. I am. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, so I'm, you know, I definitely had Lutheran friends. Well, what's like a Lutheran hymn? What's a, what's a, what's one? What's oh, one that like, um, like, oh, all, all the, the, the ones that there were, there were the ones that were written by, the you know, age old guys lift high the cross. Oh, sacred head now wounded. Now, as the deer panteth for the water was my favorite. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know all those. There's so many, and I always imagined the uh, the writers of these hymns. A lot of them had a kind of a the kind of mid nineteenth century ones had this kind of you know moral American feel to them and you know a, a sensibility to them that was i always imagine the like hymn writers writing in like a room above a, a store with carts going by and it was a i had an idea of what they were of, of how they were right it was it was just in my mind you know but yeah i filled that up a panteth is a word that you know the as the deer panteth what what's the full title the, as the deer panteth the, as the deer panteth for the water so my soul that longs for thee 
there's uh there was that there's that film killing the sacred deer i think it was called a few years back mm. it seems like a film title of something that would be very yeah it, it feels like it was like a a, a, a it, de- it was describing a tapestry or something yeah 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 how about so like as you got a little older was there music that was kind of yours and yours alone the first music that was like like this is this is mine yeah yeah there was a there was a couple that i thought were really amazing uh one was mississippi john hurt mm-hmm. when i got to be about 16 i i heard bob dylan saying uh nashville skyline on on that record i discovered that record I plugged them in my folks' old record player, and they had that record. Put it on, and my world opened up from there. And suddenly, I was realizing that it, that like music and singing and songs wasn't just for you know people who were like shiny and flashy and had like amazing voices and like were introduced by Dick Clark. You know, it was like a, it was like uh, more like I suddenly realized here was a bunch of like. The music that had so much more power in it and i guess it was like mississippi john hurt i remember buying joan Baez's first record uh, in the in hilltop grocery store in medford oregon with a bottle of lemonade tom waits album blue valentine which is how i first discovered tom waits and then i remember my dad in 1986 on my folks 20th wedding anniversary bought my mom the first CD we ever got, which was Sgt. Pepper's, and began with, it was 20 years ago today. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that record, I thought, like, uh, I, I was just more almost, like, uh, annoyed that this music had existed and I hadn't known about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the, first, the first CD is a milestone. I remember, I, yeah. I, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I was uh, really into music, but I don't think I got a CD until 89. Um, mm-hmm. and it was because I went to college and I didn't have a player, but my roommate did, and I didn't have any other music to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Isn't that great? Were you playing guitar already during all this? When I was about 16, I, I picked up the guitar after I heard that, uh, that Bob Dylan track, Girl from the North Country. Yeah. With Johnny Cash. That was exactly when I picked it up, like same day. Were you trying, were you teaching yourself then like how to like finger pick and that kind of thing? Well, yeah, initially I was like, what opened up to me was this idea that like I had like a, here was like a way for me to like describe the world that seemed immediately recognizable. And so that was, that was like, it wasn't so much that I I like was learning anything except that's raw rudiments so that I could like express myself in in with my words you know you know i i'd played violin from the age of four i'd never learned a note read but i was really good at like, picking up things by ear but you know you can't sing with a violin you know and and i had all this this like poetry and scraps of writing that very much felt like water without a bucket you know in the the song filled the bucket so i was learning chords and I remember, you know, starting to listen to Mississippi John Hurt and wondering, like, how it was possible to play two guitars at once, you know, <laughs> that kind of feeling where uh, then realizing that he was actually picking the strings with his fingers and like you could do more that way. And that was, it was a it was a it was an absolute learning process with no no prior understanding of that type of music. When I first started, got a guitar, I was in junior high and so many of the people around me, a lot of my friends were picking up guitar too, but everyone my age wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. And I, Uh I had zero interest. I just wanted to like learn enough chords so I could write a song. And immediately I was just like, you guys can try to do that. That seemed like, that was almost like to me, like, like I'm going to be Michael Jordan. Like you're not going to be Michael Jordan. Yeah but I could be a songwriter. Like it felt like yeah. more possible to me or something. I don't know. No, I agree. I was, I, I used to listen to like, I had those headphones, the radio headphones, black radio headphones that I would listen to music on top 40 stuff on the way to school on the bus in the morning to, to make music like that seemed like, like kind of like equal to like walking through the screen into like the he-man cartoon you know (laughs) it was like that is not a thing that's a a possibility for me i'm not 
I'm none of these things. I'm not from California. <laughs> I'm not cool. None of that. It's like, and, and so then here's this other music that comes along and is uh, approachable and and proletarian and like with a, you know, a guitar and a simple like structure that I'd been singing in church all my life. But none of my other friends were playing guitar. I, we didn't have any real music like bands going on in, in the school I was at. There was, it was just kind of my little thing that I did by myself. Yeah. I always say Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, you know, I would see him and I said, I don't know anyone who looks like that. I've never met anyone yeah. who looks like that. But then <laughs> when I heard the replacements and they were from Minneapolis, like I was, I was like, oh, this is all, you just do it, you know? And you just be a guy like, like that, you know? And that was so freeing. It's hard to even, it's hard to even put in words how, how freeing that was and how maybe before the internet, et cetera, I don't want to be grandpa eighties here, but like, like that, that I needed to see something because it, it, it didn't, it, it did not feel accessible up until then. Yeah. So it, I've been asking everyone this one question, which is this, does music relate to seasons to you? Do you, do you have so like, this is, this sounds better in the summer. This sounds better in the winter. This sounds mm. better in the fall or is, or is it all the same to you? I think it's all the same, you know, like for me, it's, it's, it's always been about like, you know, I think since, I think when I started to get this idea, it was when I was first starting to drive around and play gigs on my own in, in the car and you're just kind of driving around real on your own in the, it, you know, across the country. And, and I had this big, yeah, like all, everyone, a big stack notebook of CDs binder. And, and I think I realized at that point was I was like, popping those in at different times on the trip that I was using them as a real medicine, you know, like and, and something about having like a limited number of, of options made it feel like it was more of a pharmaceutical cabinet. You know, you reach into your thing page through, I need to hear Elliot Smith. I need to hear like Leonard Cohen. First we take Manhattan or something like each, just even just the song or, you know, or a few tracks, like it was always like that. So it was always it's good or bad depending on the moment. That's that's cool, and I, I think that limiting option, even like I I my theory on sort of the resurgence of vinyl, is part that like you put it on and it stays there, and mm -hmm. you know I'm you know I, I I think when I first started getting music, I didn't have tons of music from my parents. It wasn't a real music household, but when I got my first ten records, say those are the ten I'd listen to, and you'd be like, well, mm. I've played that one, so like there's nine others to choose from and you yeah. really heard heard those songs a lot and in, in, in a way that's that was positive yeah i think that's true you know like i was reading recently uh some stuff by this lady she was talking where was that uh she was a researcher who studied uh she was a neuroscientist who studied like reading and its effects on the brain and you know she was saying one of the things that's really interesting about reading is that it's a it's a it's a sense that we're not born with, you know. We're born with all these other like like inborn abilities, but reading as humans is something we teach ourselves and we learn ourselves, and then we carry forward. And so it's very plastic in this sense. And like, and one of the things that's that has been, uh, she wasn't giving a a a. a a weighted argument to this. She said one of the things that has changed in how human beings read is that we've developed an ability to skim. And like that's in a that's a very, very, very useful ability when you're being bombarded with bajillions of bytes of, of information. And I think that's so true. And but she was saying like, but there is a deeper, a deeper uh ability that the brain has to take in this information and take deep ideas and large chunks of information and stew them all together in a way that we don't get when we skim. And I think that's the same with listening to music. Like, I don't think I've, you know, I think one of the reasons why, like, my associations with some of this earliest music exists is because I just listen to it for hours and hours. Like, every little note. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember as a teenager, especially when I was young and I didn't have much money and I'd buy a record if my first 
instinct wasn't that it was my favorite, I'd keep listening. Yes. And I would go deeper and deeper and I would almost like, I would find the value in it in a way that's hard to do now. Yeah, that's so true, man. Yeah, no kidding. There's Okay, this is a great, it is actually a very um, good transition, what you're saying about the, the neuroscientist, because the first song I ever obsessed about of yours that was, that was The Temptation of Adam, I think that's from 2007. And to me, there's like a sort of conflict between faith and faith, magic and science in your songs. And like the title, Temptation of Adam, makes me think of original sin in a biblical sense. And then the song takes place in a fallout shelter, couples hiding out from a nuclear event or a potential one. And I just listened to this and prep for this after years of listening to the song. It's still stunning. And, you see, and I love when you, you say fusion was the broken heart that lonely, so only thought, and all night long you drove, drove me wild with your equations. You have, it seems like throughout your work, you have an interest in science. Uh, your parents were scientists, is that right? And uh, yeah. talk about how, how does that affect your work or your person, really? I was raised with these kind of two twin pillars by my parents who were like a real unit in both very, very practical and uh, solid religious faith. And then on the other side, their careers as 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 neuroscientists, you know, and like their like deep study of like of the brain and and its and its its kind of mysteries and its absurdities, and so I think you know uh, like a lot of times in my music when when in my writing I I end up back at these at these junctures where I I sort of feel like the two worlds trying to stand separate you know are 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 not are, are there neither one of them has all the these answers you know neither one of them you know one you know one attempts to explain everything already and the other says just keep on trusting and 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 all the answers will be will be figured out and like i guess like i love that like I kind of love that 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 tension because I really feel like it's a super existential one and 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 one that like we like many like many many of us I feel like are 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 forced to deal with every day, you know? There's like like science science can't give us all the answers right away and and we, we you know the loss of faith is is something that in this country is seen as a loss of conviction or as a loss of or a, or a kind of a ceding to like uh, a, a a less moral way of life and and i i think that that we're just being torn in all those directions yeah and i mean I, I love e that right even if you're not i mean like like a scientist or a i, I mean just Faith versus the technology that pervades our every day, um, which seems to make us less happy, um, mm. is 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 kind of fascinating to me because it, it does, you know, you can read all, you know, you can pick up the New York Times, whatever. It'll say like less people are going to church, less people mm. are, are you know, believing, et cetera. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think that um, we are, in my mind, reeling a little bit and 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 i think that you and i probably would find people are showing up at performances and mm -hmm. um uh looking for community yeah yeah they and, and yeah absolutely and and looking for like a community that well i don't you know like I, you know, I've been I've been super fascinated with everything going on in the discussion about like non-human intelligence the UFO UAP uh, thing that's happening that I see, and that's I'm very interested in the fact how how little it's it's actually being like covered and talked about. It doesn't. I don't think that there's any. I think it's a human impulse to look away from things that are are absurd and weird and don't fit with our our world. But I I also find that like that, that when I think about science and my love of it it's typically bound to the people that are doing it you know and to the personalities of these of these people as they struggled to like 
to to understand the anomalous things in in the work that they were doing and and that's like so beautiful to me i love i love the stories and the idea that 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 alchemy could turn into enlightenment could turn into whatever it could be now to turn it you know this progression of of human understanding in a certain direction is so so beautiful and and like scientists are so human in their search i i i just think it's it's one i just think it's wonderful and like if anything like the uh we you know regular folks like like us can be what are still it's the uh, ability to be wowed by things that can't be understood is still is still the most beautiful part of the world i think hey i'm craig finn here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music, so I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account, or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think about the things we, you know, things that are a huge part of our lives, like, um, well, love. Right, like that. Mm-hmm. We'll, I don't know. We'll never understand love, really, and that's why we all write songs about it in some way. Because it's the the mysteries in our world are are still the most things I don't know that we're that we're grasping the most. And for people, yeah, yeah. there is an admiration for people who are trying to figure out, um, trying to attack that a little bit, you know, more so than I feel like I am on a day to day basis. Well, yeah, you know, like I guess, like I was thinking, like. If I, you know, I, it's so easy to, for me to like imagine like somebody growing up who, who, you know, is, is grows up without somebody, you know, and is separated from somebody they love by like a great distance. And to feel like, you know, you, you have a pull towards a, a place that you can't, you, you'll never be able to get to. And towards a relationship that you may not. There's so many things about it that seem to uh, the the longing seems to track with with all sorts of like what like what like the non locality in, in quantum physics. You know, spooky action at a distance. Yeah. Where where objects faster than the speed of light can have an effect upon each other, and like you know, and it, that there there are you know these things are are actually you know documented that we. That 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 these these things can happen, and the fact that we 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 don't necessarily extrapolate it out to a force like love, is because like scientists can't quantify it, but we all know it's there. You know, we all know just like gravity in that way, where like we all know it's there, but we don't know what it is. And I think right, it's wonderful. It's, and then yeah. it all then that's where the science falls into the poetry, because there's no other way to. Uh, express the ineffable in a satisfactory way. Yeah, I've even heard doctors, friends that are doctors, explain certain things and saying, well, sometimes that you need a little magic there. And you're like, yeah. oh, no, wow. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, but uh, what a quick aside on, on Temptation of Adam, because there's that great crossword puzzle uh, joke in there of WWIII. Yeah. Um, do you, did you, are you a crossword puzzle person? Or were you? I I love I love crossword puzzles, but I'm not very good at them. But I I can really? do a Monday or Tuesday, no problem. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was obsessive about them, and uh, that may have been when I tracked like tracked the song. I was obsessive about them for many years. Like I couldn't get my day going until yeah I yeah knocked it out. But that the reason I ask sort of is that um, I find that there's one part of crossword puzzles for me that re- resembles songwriting in that sometimes if there's like, you know, like the big long one at the bottom and you can't work, you can't get it right. You can't get it. And then you walk away. And then a couple yeah. hours later you look at it and it's like, Oh, it's obvious. And I find that yeah. when I'm working on songs, that's very much a thing too. Do you find that? Absolutely. 
I think that, yeah, that's like, in that, it's like a wonder, wondrous kind of process that like, that, uh, you know, yeah. And I, sometimes I think like a lot, you know, up until like, I guess the last five years, I've thought about it, like, you know, how, how phenomenal this, like this, this supercomputer is behind between my ears that it's working on stuff that I don't know about. And like, what other stuff is getting worked on back there, you know? But, you know, and then it's gotten me thinking like, okay, so if the, you know, to the point where I was like, okay, I've got lots of questions. I have lots of questions in my songs. Are these questions that occur to me, questions that I came up with, or are they questions that somebody back in my, somebody back in my DNA had and just started obsessing about to the point that it only flowered now, you know? And, and like, that's so beautiful. But these days I just started to think like, you know, that, you know, that time when you're like, when you're just sitting down and you're wondering if you're ever going to write again and you think to yourself, I'm never, I, I think like now sometimes like how, how long would it take for, for, for an angel to reach me? You know, mm-hmm. you know, when you call out for that, like that, like feeling that inspiration that to be touched by that feeling, like how how long does it take for the angel to hear you and then make it across the entire universe you know for me it's like 5 days you know but i, I like uh, but it's it's like uh, there's so many different ways of I, I wonder whether it's all self-contained in our in our own minds or if there's a part of us that's reaching up into an older record you know yeah i mean i think maybe i think i i think number 2 I think mm-hmm. there's an older record somehow there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like, like I love the idea. That's the 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 that kind of like that. There's a there's some sort of of web or network or system that we are allowed to like reach into, and yeah. and and I guess like I've always felt it to be there because I don't really believe that like that that it's me you know really you know it's not really like me doing any of right well you know you you write a lot i mean you you write a lot of Mm -hmm. songs i'm under the you know at least that's that's how i that might and uh so last year great record spectral lines and you know as someone who writes a lot of songs how do you write how do you like say all right i'm ready to make a record is it a commercial decision or is it like I've got these songs that seem to be making sense to each other or are you always recording or is it, or is, how does, how does that process go? Yeah. It's, I don't, yeah, I don't know about you, but I feel like you, when you're like, when you write a lot, you end up like it's, it's typically, I, I, I don't ever like curate the songs as they're coming out. You know, I think I might sit down and be like, I'm going to work on this song. I'm going to finish this sucker. And then, like, you end up writing a whole other thing that's not about that and is not in, in any particular relation to that other piece. And so the, they end up, I, I like, I was recording the last couple of days a bunch of songs that maybe I've been kind of picking up and putting down and wondering what to do with over the last 10 years that were not because I didn't have stuff, but because I was I started to realize these songs are hanging together like mm-hmm. they're in a particular place in my mind there was never a time for them but now that here they are like so i feel like that's the way it is with me with with the releasing records is that you, you kind of put them together when you feel like you have this this cohesive whole but also like i don't know writing songs and sitting down to write i only ever seem to be able to sit down and write when i feel like deluded enough to think that it's the best song that will ever be written, you know, <laughs> no matter what it is. <laughs> do, you, do you sit down every day to write? No, no. I like, I like, I, but I do have to like do something creative every day, you know? So if I'm writing prose, I'll be like, you know, working on that for a few hours and, uh, and then, and then I'm tapped out in that way. And oftentimes with the guitar and writing songs, that's really like Haley, my my wife. She describes it as a gas that fills up the available space. You know, <laughs> it's like so somewhere in between fetching a snack for for Moxie, my youngest, and like and like taking out the trash and stuff. I'll get something down either 
you know, I write a lot on my phone. I like, yeah. I think it's fantastic for, for catching ideas and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I used to be a notebook guy and now I'm a notes app guy. I mean, that's like the technology, um, that, you know, yeah. someday from the last, the last record, it was one of a really beautiful song. And there, there was something about that song, like that I took as a message of kind of perseverance. And it, I took it in my mind, I think about it as sort of like a creative thing, like, cause I'll get up, I'll do the same. I, I work in the morning. Like I wake up, Angie goes yeah. off to work and that's my time, you know, coffee. Yeah. And I either write something on my computer or I pick up my guitar and write a song. And there is, if you think about it, like if you think about it too much, there is this like, where is this going? But mm-hmm. then always it turns into something like, you know, it doesn't mean it turns into something I use, but it may, it, it eventually leads to a record or, you know, something. Yeah. And I think that as I get older, I am more trusting in my own, like, I just know that it's good for me to do it, you know? And I don't know what's going to, do you, do you feel that way? Have you, have you gained that wisdom? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I think it, it, I I, I saw something, I don't remember the artist, but it was like statue, like, like sculptures at, at, at the Guggenheim. And it was like a, a thing there was something written on the wall that the the artist had said about like the fact that was the the that that maintaining your hunger mm-hmm. is like the hardest part about growing older as an artist is like maintaining the hunger for the thing itself and uh it you know it's especially like when and i and and i think that's true and i think that like the only times like that that you know it, it is really worth writing is is when you really do feel that like hunger and sometimes you have to sit down and like and just look at the page and it, and that will come back that feeling but but like I, I I feel that like that water you can't pump the cistern too many times at a, in a row you know you have to still have you have to have something down there to pull up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to, like, Jeff Tweedy wrote a book about creativity or songwriting, Mm. and I I read it, and it was, the one thing I really liked about it was when he talked about um, taking things in, you know, because Mm. if I get stuck, sometimes it's like, I need to listen to someone else's stories, Um, Mm -hmm. be that watch a movie or read a book or something like that, and just sort of be like, I got to stop telling mine for a second and take in some stuff, you know, and think yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think about that like I think about it like feeding the monster. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're like called to be like an artist and somebody who expresses things outwardly, then you have to have something inwardly that you're drawing from and 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 I think that's like we're so recombinant, you know, we put so much stuff in and then it comes out in weird ways, but unless you put in the ingredients you know, I, I you know, and and one of you know, I really like the idea from uh, uh, from that book, The Artist's Way, which I I read a long time ago. The thing that I took away from it was the 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 idea of having an artist date, where yeah. you were like gonna go and do something weird or follow an impulse, like it's your job, you know. <laughs> I like that idea because it forces you to put that stuff in. I do that uh, oftentimes if I'm like, should I go to this film? Like, and I, I always do it with this sort of like, it's kind of my duty to go, you know, like, yeah, that looks like an interesting show. That looks like an interesting film. I'm like, if I have time, I should do it because it's going to help me think about my world. It, it, it's, it's, if, if this is what I do, then it's going to help me do what I do. I agree. I think like, you know, those like, explorers would be like they're like i'm gonna you know go look for the source of the nile and they would they would get all their stuff together and they'd get all this funding from all these people who all want to be a part of the expedition in some way you know and and they're giving all the resources for you to go off and do this thing and then it's your so you you know it's it's your duty to report back but you still got to go on the trip yeah you know so speaking of which so you've been doing these uh the you know you've been doing shows around the 20 20 years of hello starling record what 
what would you say, what would you report back from, from the, you know, if you were going back to uh, yeah. the guy uh, who wrote and recorded and toured Hella Starling, what would you, like, how, how, what do you, what do you learn from going back to these songs? But also like, what would you say about the person who made those songs? Yeah. Well, I, I was like, when, when the idea came up, I was not into the idea. Like, cause I'm, I didn't, I was very dubious because I thought like, who, like, this is not this is not my role to play something in, you know in it, it with a sense of of like looking back mm-hmm. like my job is to be moving forward screw that I mean I I love my records yeah. but I don't need to go like you know live in this ha- this this structure that I left long ago you know then I thought like you know like maybe I maybe I'm just being nervous about about getting older and time passing and and that inevitable feeling and the fact that I can't be that person anymore. So so maybe I'm just being, you know, a weenie. <laughs> and so I decided to do it. And like and and the first couple nights were so bizarre because I was running fully into into these songs in a block that were like uh brought back so many memories. And good and bad of me when I was trying hard, but, you know, often like failing in my attempts to like do things right. And like all these things that like could never be seen from the delivery or anything, but you're really kind of fighting a bunch of old of old demons and meeting a bunch of old angels in those in those songs that you wrote yourself, you know. But then I realized, then I, as I played and got more comfortable with that kind of weird feeling, uh, I realized that, like, there was, like, families there, like, old people there, you know, kids who were, like, 18 who had seen, you know, hadn't been born when the record came out, but had listened to it all their lives, you know, people that told me stuff and, like, came to tell me about children who they'd had who had died or people that they had once met but had lost track of and all these stories and things that people wanted to say and that were bringing all their own memories that were difficult or beautiful to the thing and it wasn't about the songs it was about a chance to like stand there in the in 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 those notes and let them unlock the the latch to your own kind of heart it was like, and I never thought about music that way before in my own, uh, in my own context. Yeah. And I never had the chance to see it like that because I was always concerned with playing, bringing things to a new place where we were all in it new together. But, but this was a different thing altogether. It was wonderful. I understand the, uh, reluctance, but also with the whole steady just turned 20, um, last year. So yeah, we, congratulations. Thank you. We we did and we put out a book which made me go through, you know, I kind of helped edit the photos and going through all that. And what I was really struck by was, you know, when I look back on photos from 05, 06 was all the things we were that were new to us. I mean, we'd all been in bands before, mm. but it was like the first time, man, it was the first time a lot of people were showing up at shows. It was the first time walking into a lot of these clubs that we've played a lot of times since then, you know, the first time, yeah. the first time in the nine thirty club, the first time. And they were so big. They were so big. They were so big. We thought, how are we going <laughs> to, I mean, I remember the Bower, the Bowery ballroom. We, we, we did a, we, we were going to have a record lease for our second record separation Sunday. I just, I still love this. We'd sold out the Mercury Lounge. So we're going to move up to the Bowery ballroom and we had a meeting with us at, at, and we, we all talked about how like, we really needed to push this one. We needed to invite everyone's friend from work. We needed to like, this was the one where you really need yeah. to kind of be a progressive. And then, you know, something great happened. We were on the coverage of the Village Voice and the show sold out. And it was kind of like from that moment, yeah. we stopped talking about <laughs> bugging our friends from work. Um, right. But it was very, yeah. it's very sweet. And, and I think, I think nostalgia is dangerous, but I also think it's grounding to kind of look back sometimes and see where you came from, you know? Yes, man. You know, yeah. And I, that you're saying that reminded me of that, that Carnegie thing we did together with yes. Bruce Springsteen. And, and like how like you know like most of those artists who get like honored at this carnival they don't show up but mm-hmm. like 
But that dude like looked at Square in the face and said like, <laughs> I'm going to be there for it. And I remember he went after all of us had played all his songs. He came out on stage and he just said, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's that's really, um, really. But he got to see a- all of us. He got to see all of this that he'd done. And like, it was beautiful. It was a really Must beautiful night. That was our first night I met you. So that, that was a very cool yeah. night. And that, I think of that as a life, life-changing life night in some way. Like I was like, yeah, me wow, too. I played Carnegie Hall and sang with Bruce Springsteen on the same night. Uh, <laughs> pretty <laughs> Rosalita, cool. Rosalita, and you were great. You took a verse and it was amazing. Yeah. My dog is actually named Rosalita um, because, oh, uh, because uh, uh, that's that's one of my songs. Um, all right, I will, speaking of songs, I have one more for you, and it's this. Um only a river. Um, it's a song you wrote uh, with our, you know, mutual friend Josh Kaufman, I believe, that appeared on the Bob Weir record "Blue Mountain." Ended up last year being covered twice by Bob Dylan. It seems like being knighted <laughs> on some level. As I as I understand it, 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 it was it in an old song that you brought in. Uh yeah, I I, re- I wrote it when I was uh, twenty or nineteen. Uh, back in college mm-hmm. and uh and i was like and and i i didn't i never recorded it i i was like you know it was just in there uh way deep and then when josh kaufman like started working with weir uh and weir wanted to do some stuff that felt like cowboy kind of wyoming reminiscent i i realized like i had this song and like and so i sent it to him and he really he really dug it, and uh, and that was like, it, but it's so. Odd. I mean, I actually recorded it for the first time uh, for something yesterday, <laughs> and uh, if because then because I had it for all the time, and then Bob Weir recorded, it, so I was like, well, I'm never going to record that song because I'm not going to. And then Dylan did it, and I was like, well, I, I, I now I have like some serious like, now you know, I. I hope my version is actually good. <laughs> what, 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 backing up though, what, when you say you had it, but you hadn't recorded it, had you written it down? Do you have like archives like that? Uh, I had probably, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have it in one of my, like in one of my notebooks, you know, it was like, it was uh, probably in the, in the, in January uh, of like 90, yeah, 96, 97 or 98. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but it was so, like, you know how those songs hang around in your head forever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, you know, I, I uh, not to insert myself in the story, but I was really pleased that uh, I woke up early that day and uh, it was after he played it. I think he played it in Japan first. And I was yeah. on Twitter and I saw the set list on some Bob Dylan thing I follow and it said only a river yeah. and so i i was the one who te- i texted josh pretty early did you really said, that's amazing said, i think bob, bob dylan covered a song you had you know you you because josh is josh a co-writer on that or is he, yeah yeah uh <laughs> no yeah 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 yeah, yeah. So, I so i said you know kaufman i think you've got i think bob dylan might have covered a song you had a part in um and he was like this is the first time hearing of it and so i was able to deliver that um that is incredible. Historic wow. good news to me because, you know, my friends got Bob Dylan covered their song. Uh, pretty amazing. amazing. Is that, is that, how did God. you find? How did you find out? Did someone call you? Ta- Kaufman probably Kaufman? wrote me like a, a minute after you. I was in <laughs> Ireland. I was, I, was, uh, uh, I was about to, I had just gotten in to play a show in Dublin and, and, I, and, I, and I was like, I, you know, I didn't know. I, it was like, it really was like through a looking glass, you know, it was just like into a whole nother like, w- like world where like, you know, cause like Dylan is one of those people that's like, f- like so famously like, like a wall, you know, like as, as much as he's like, can describe like, you know, the stars and all that. He's like a pretty solidly self-contained person so the idea that anything would like a song from from this era would have an effect on him was was amazing 
Yeah, I mean, I was like, I remember like when he mentioned Alicia Keys in a song, I was like, oh wow, <laughs> Bob Dylan knows Alicia Keys. Like, you don't even know, you don't know what he knows or doesn't know, but apparently he yeah, knows only yeah. a river, right? Um, you said in a tweet, I mean, this is so beautiful. You said to all my friends out there making art, it's not always easy seeing the ripples your works makes, but take the story of my little song, Only a River is Comfort. Art travels, voices carry. Your art is out there in the world, making its home in many places, many hearts. That's so beautiful. Um, I hope you continue to, to feel that way. Uh, Dude, I, do. I, I, I really do. You know, like it's like time goes by and like the real joy when you look back is the, is the, are the moments when you're making art, you know? It's like so fun. And, uh, and then if it goes off and does its own thing, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Bob Dylan covering that song, Only a River, is wonderful. I was thrilled to know Josh and Josh Kaufman when I heard that Dylan had done the song. Thrilled for them. Massive thanks to Josh Ritter for speaking. He's got a really cool way of thinking and saying things. So much cool music from him, too. The most recent record, Spectra Lines, is fantastic. Get it if you haven't already. He's an author, too two novels. Josh keeps busy. I really appreciate him taking the time to join us here. I'm back from the tour I did with the Mountain Goats and Pulley. Such a great time playing some places I haven't been to in a long time. Some that I've never been to at all. Both Mountain Goats and Bully are fantastic performers. Also awesome to hang with. Really positive times. Soon I'll be embarking on a solo tour of the UK and Ireland which starts Belfast and uh, February 20th in Belfast. I'll be joined on all shows by my friend Scott Levine, who's a songwriting great, really love his stuff, and I'm excited to see him 10 different shows coming up. The last day of tour, March 2nd, we'll be hosting a live podcast event at the Moth Club. That's how I remember it. Recorded live that afternoon. Our esteemed guest will be Matt Osman, who's bassist and a founding member of the band Suede. Matt's also a writer and novelist. Scott Levine will be joining as a guest as well, and it's all going to be amazing. So if you're nearby, I hope you'll come down. All dates are at craigfin.net. Some shows are sold out and some are on their way, so take action. I can't wait for this one. Then, of course, uh, Hold Steady World. We've got The Weekender coming up, London, March 8, 9, and 10. That will be epic. It always is. Very excited for all of it. One more thank you to Josh Ritter for joining. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. More great guests to come, so please listen and subscribe. I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it. 